This is an emergency transmission from TV Cream. Hello, I'm Graham and this is TV Cream Stays Indoors. In this podcast, I send someone a link to an old TV show and then once they've watched it, I call them up to find out what they made of it. Now, today I'm talking to James Roberts. Uh, Where exactly are you locked up today, James? I'm locked up in Guernsey in the Channel Islands today. And are you behaving yourself? Are you staying indoors, doing all the right things? Uh, Absolutely, following government advice to the letter. Uh, We're doing doing all right over here, actually. Uh, Touch wood, it's... uh, we're not as badly affected as many. Okay, so James, the video link I sent you was for an instalment of the, and I feel obliged to use this word, the offbeat BBC One crime drama, Virtual Murder. which aired at 9.45pm on Friday the 31st of July 1992. Now, before you'd even clicked on that link, what was your reaction before watching it to, to getting, I'm going to dare to say, reacquainted with virtual murder? Well, yes, reacquainted is, is just about accurate because I, I deleted it from my brain, clearly, for, for <laughs> all this time. And then when I saw the name, um, it, it came. I won't say flooding back. There was a trickle. Um, I remember, I do remember it at the time. Um, I couldn't have recalled any element of the plot. I could have told you one of the lead's names and I would have remembered the look of the other lead. But beyond that, it was, it was empty. OK, now here comes the toughest question that I'm going to ask you during this encounter. So steal yourself. James, please can you talk us through what actually happens in this episode, which does have the fantastic title of Last Train to Hell and Back? I, I'm semi-prepared. I, I made a note. I'm not going to read the note, but I did. I feel I had to jot it down because it's that type of experience. So let me try and do this. Right. So in this episode, there is a series of murders. <laughs> and... Um, the prime suspect is a, uh, an, a judge. The sentence of the court upon you is that you be taken from here to a place of execution and that you be hanged by the neck until you be dead. Uh, with a very sort of hang em high attitude. No! Take her down. What connects the victims is they were, they were involved in a failed attempt to, um, to convict him following the suicide of his wife. That, that's the that's the top layer of detail for this yeah. episode. Okay, well maybe we'll 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 get deeper into some of the other layers. Before we do that, I just want to talk generally about virtual murder. My first question is, why that name, virtual murder? Well, that's a really good question, and I think probably anyone tuning into virtual murder for five of the six episodes that I now realise they made um, would have asked themselves the same question. And given that it was made when in the, in the early 90s, you'd have probably guessed um, before watching it that it was something, something to do with either cutting-edge crime or cutting-edge crime solving, so that it would have involved computers, almost certainly some element of virtual reality, as was de rigueur. Yeah. Because I think what Lawnmower Man was r- roughly the same period so it would have been some high-tech 90s tron type element that would have uh, warranted the name that's what you'd have thought well let me just um address the law merman um elephant in the room which is that it came out in the u.s in march 92 now actually that fits quite well into our timeline because this was the summer of 92 so plenty of time isn't it for the producer to sprinkle a little bit of glitter and by saying hey 
here's the killer title that you need. I think clearly that the BBC commissioners thought there's something in the air. We can't quite explain what it is, um, but um, the word virtual has got to be in there somewhere. It was it's it was sort of pre X Files, wasn't it as well? So it was, yeah. I think I think people were were groping about for something to try and capture the essence of what was happening. So what you're trying to say here, I think, if I can condense your words, is that, is that um, it's the precursor to X-Files. It's the, sh- it's the show that X-Files um, saw and thought, wow, OK. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, there's probably just enough time yeah, to, to think, yeah, Chris Carter could have uh, heard good things about virtual murder and then just sort of punched up his script a bit um, before X-Files went into production. The precursor to virtual murder, um, certainly in the eyes of those who made virtual murder, is probably the Avengers. Whether whether viewers would have thought that is a different is a different question. Well, yes, you're right. I think the show it's it's very obviously in the idiom of those old ITC spy series. And uh, one of the co-creators, uh, Brian Dagar, he wrote for the Saint. But my question to you is, why do this? Well, it's a, it's a two-prong question. Why do this? It's a three-prong question. Okay, so why do this in 1992? Why shoot it on videotape? And why do it at BBC Pebble Mall? I am pretty convinced all those questions came to mind after the series was made and they were watching it back and thinking, I don't know if we're going to get a second season out of this. Um, because all those things that you've mentioned actively work against it, clearly. I mean, the, if they were hoping that people would watch it and it would evoke memories of the Avengers, then making it look like it was filmed, well, probably just around the corner from Pebble Mill itself at Pebble mm. Mill isn't going to help. Throughout, I mean, it's it's definitely set in its own world, but I felt there was almost a kind of a, a children's BBC style of logic that plays throughout. So, for example, the initial murder is then announced on local radio. Uh, and not only that, it's dubbed... A so-called Empire Railway murder. And it's local radio that everyone is listening to as well in that kind of, uh, you know, just handy bit of storytelling logic. The the police officer, um, Stephen Yardley, playing Inspector Cadogan, he wears a trench coat and a broad-brimmed hat. There's a secret chamber hidden behind a bookcase. I was on the back foot all the way through, and I didn't know if that was bad writing sometimes, some of those things, some of those conceits, or if it is a house style or what. Yeah, I mean, we're not we're not given enough information to decide for ourselves whether we're looking at sort of um, a, a, a carefully realised universe where you know that can accommodate this type of surrealism, and you know, whether we're just supposed to take it in our stride and enjoy it, or whether it's just um, sort of a, a clunky, clumsy. Um, sort of uh, amalgam of different of different things they've thrown into the mix uh, well this is i think what makes it um quite dissonant is that while it's striving for this uh glossy uh vr type 90s uh feel um it's also trying to evoke the sort of the 60s idiom as you say mm. but also it's it has got the production values of a, of a very 80s uh very almost provincial um bbc show as well so it's a weird collision of aesthetics and um and i think that that sort of gets in the way i watched it twice graham i watched it Gosh. two times um and not many i don't think many people can say that um and i sort of the second time i was i was better able to look beyond the sort of um i say gloss in the sense of the sort of su- superficial elements of it mm. rather than the actual production values 
Um, but yeah, I think anyone encountering it first off would think, I'm not, I am not sure what to make of this at all. It's this mix, isn't it, of modernity and heritage. So of the modern, there are things like, well, there is the title, but there are computers. I think what RoboProf here is trying to say is that if we crack just one letter of the code, the computer can do the rest. There's a fax machine. What's this bloody thing supposed to be? I think it's a tie. Technology. Whatever happened to telegrams in the post office? Actually, I have to say, watching this, I did think that the fax machine itself is a great loss to TV drama because what a brilliant way, isn't it, to ratchet up the tension when a plot reveal arrives line by line. But against the, you know, the, the shocking modernity of that, where there are steam trains. There's Richard Todd, who is the judge that you, um, you talked about, who, I mean, he on his own invokes a bygone age. Um, he, he, he's a villainous judge. He travels in a vintage car and says something like... What prey is wrong with a man who collects confessions? Or calls someone a, a miscreant. Do you think there's a useful tension, though, in between those two things, in, in between the, new, uh, the old and the new? Well, I suppose potentially in the sense that it, if, if properly deployed or artfully deployed, it could have conjured that type of that strange otherness that made the best Avengers episode so successful. It could have, mm. um, and maybe that's, maybe that's what they were, they were striving for. It's really difficult to work out because, because there are parts of the episode which are quite well executed there and there are parts which are not at all well executed, but it's hard to know <laughs> when either is intentional. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that, that line you quoted there about, you know, collecting confessions, there, there are parts of this which have a very sort of play for today feel about them as well. Mm. And it's also got that sort of guest star of the week um, vibe too, you mm. know, mm. Um, like anthology shows can get, you can get, you can get good people in because it's, it's, uh, it's a shorter work, you know, it's a, it's a week or two's work. Um, and I think there, there were other guest stars. I think John Pertwee cropped up later on. In, in a- he did, yeah. Welsh Nora, Suzanne Maria. Irene, Murita, all my lovely, dirty girls. Um, so yeah, um, it, it's it is a it's a strange collision of of, of different eras, and actually all all of them actually distinctively British. That's true. I I think the collision is most obvious in the title sequence. I mean, talk to me about the title sequence. Your reaction to that? I mean, it almost deserves thirty minutes of its own. Um, it, it is achingly 90s. It doesn't feel like a, a cop show or a procedural. It feels like a magazine show. It's sort of got the fantastic, um, almost like a curse. Part of the logo is cursive, I think. It's on this sort of heavy stock paper background. Um, and it's got, it's got the silhouette of, our, of, the, of the two... Uh, the two main characters, so John Cornelius and Samantha Valentine, which are fantastic names. Mm. Um, so it's got them sort of silhouetted, um, dashing about, and the best bit of all is when they're sort of, I think they're perched on the logo itself or, or something like that. Uh, as I, and as I say, it's just their silhouette. And and she has an idea and he's sort of, yes, you by Joe, you've got it type thing. It's all very, it's a real flourish to their silhouetting acting, um, but it's... Um, it, it's a classic of, of the genre, that, that genre being early 90s daytime TV magazine shows, I think. What did you make of it, Graham? I know this I, I, is, I'm, I'm turning the tables on you. 
Well, I, I think actually I hadn't I hadn't thought about likening it to a magazine show, but actually you're quite right. There is a lot of magazine show elements to this in a way. So, I mean, this isn't talking about the titles, but some of the scenes, they do a transition with, with the old Quantel page turn effect where the page curls up, which completely takes you out of anything at all. It's like something out of Going Live, you know? It's mm. sort of, or it's like something out of the day-to-day, you know? They've mm. got sort of the ITV news graphics department sort of, let's let's roll it up and throw it like it like a dart or something and it, it is it is incredibly um yeah it, it's jarring it it, <laughs> it makes you stop and think <laughs> what you've just seen it does feel like a producer who's got this his hands on this new box of tricks and he's saying oh look at this you know and in the edit and no one's saying but should you be doing this i mean something else that i think that plays into that as well is is the music, the, the, uh, the title music, the incidental music. It smothers the show. And uh, I, I was interested to know that it's actually composed and performed by Harry Robertson, who is the other co-creator of this series, because otherwise you would think a producer would be would be kicking that soundtrack out and saying, let's, let's get something else. But this seems to be, again, he's sort of like, you know, it's the 90s, we don't need an orchestra now. We, I can do it here. You know, listen to this. Do you think, though, at least one could say in its favour, and I don't mean this uh, mealy mouth, it does give virtual murder a very individual house style doesn't it you you switch it on and you're going to go no oh it's virtual murder you do you do and i and there's quite a few things like that which um again on second view i i did i did warm to it and i wondered it's it has got a signature style um and and again how much of that is is deliberate and how much of that is is sort of a, a byproduct of, of certain choices that they've made but the music is one um there's something strangely airless about the whole thing, uh, or, or maybe maybe in some parts it's a bit stagey. Mm. Uh, the set the sets certainly feel like sets, and so there's a strange mixture of you know of, of decent acting. The direction's okay. There's some there's some um, some ambition to some scenes, and then you've got but then this music is strike is is quite odd, uh, and then you've got you know most of it on on VT, and it just yeah. It, it creates. I think the whole program is is somewhat transitional, really, from a, a a mode of programming or storytelling that you've got a lot in the sort of seventies and eighties into sort of the, the first rumblings of, of I don't know pre prestige TV, really, that mm. you start that started to get in the in the mid nineties onwards. You know, or Twin Peaks really would, would have mm. been running running more or less at the same time as or just before this. I like the the word you use there, airless, because. One difficulty I think it has is that it has this thing which I think is quite an 80s BBC tea time thing, which is that all the characters talk as if they're sophisticates. You keep him here as long as you like, JC. I'm sneaking Caroline out for an evening of unrestrained pleasure. But I'm busy. I know. They all talk elliptically and unhelpfully. A question is answered with another question and a kind of a raised eyebrow. Do you, I mean, I felt that's a that is a barrier to entry, isn't it? Yeah, it's 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 all very studied, um, and um, and all and even if the lines are delivered in a kind of naturalistic way, um, they they don't ring. They don't, normal people don't speak like um, like like the characters in Virtual Murder speak. Do you see uh, an image, picture? 
Oh, it's so long since I played party games. Such fun. <laughs> what sort of image am I likely to see, Doctor? Oh, I don't know. Anything that comes into your mind's eye. A dead body, perhaps? Well, actually, it's not for me to suggest things. Oh, but you have, and I'm so grateful to you. Mm. Um, and I know, I mean, that's a kind of separate discussion, because actually, nine times out of ten, you don't want people on TV to speak like normal people speak, because there's all sorts of reasons around sort of the economy of storytelling that you, you need a certain artifice to it all. But but this is, a, as you say, this is a kind of theatrical, um, self-conscious way of, uh, of of speaking as well. Although it's attempted... It's, there are attempts at sophistication. Some of the, of the dialogue is pretty uh, flat or lifeless and, or, mm. or pedestrian. And then other times there'll just be moments where um, it's, it's the opposite, really. And it's quite, it's quite economical and quite smart. And there's one scene where, uh, you know, spoiler alert, they discover that uh, the, the judge's gardener, um, is 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 using yeah. It used to go by a different name, and when it when when that old name, his real name is um, is revealed, the uh, detective inspector says, "Good heavens, Mr. Punch, plus grey beard," which actually, if anything, is is too compressed in terms of the information you're getting there. So what <laughs> if that to unpack that it means that he was uh, you know he he did time in you know did he served time in prison for domestic abuse and he's since grown a beard. <laughs> so <laughs> Mr. Punch being the nickname, which you know is is not referred to again before or since, <laughs> um, and indeed the, the you know as a gardener he has grown a beard, but it's it's yeah. It's from one extreme to the other, really. Let's talk about the leads. And so it's uh, Nicholas Clay and he's a psychology lecturer, John Cornelius. And then there's Kim Thompson uh, and she is his sidekick. And I honestly can't add any, any more detail to her role than that. The sidekick, Samantha Valentine. Now, is this, a, I mean, are they a solid firmament for a series? Um, I think the short answer is yes. Um, I had no idea after watching this episode uh, what I mean, yes, that clearly they are romantically engaged, yeah. and actually that's that's evident from the from the opening credits. Actually, they um, I'm sure in the credit sequence there's at least a well, that's it. They they sort of they they go to kiss or they've just kissed or something. It, it is it is evident, as I say, that they are a couple. They live together. Sausages, eggs, fried bread, bacon. Oh. Well, that'll set you up for the day. What do you think? A work of art, JC. Thank you. I don't think the varnish is quite dry. We interrupt this recording to do a local news item. Hang on a second. Many of these, you know, the aforementioned airless scenes, it's just, it's just the two of them in a domestic setting. Either he's cooking breakfast or they're having a, a strangely over-elaborate dinner um, on, one of the, on some mezzanine in their house or something. <laughs> um, so there's all that's going on. But I was trying to, at the end of the episode, I was thinking, well, what, what does she do? And... Uh, and you know she attends uh, a class that he's 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 taking and and you know she she's she's studying for something on the second viewing i picked up on a couple of throwaway references to i think she's she's studying to be a therapist or a counselor or maybe even a psychologist like john right um but it was only when i did a little bit of um um sort of uh, digging around after the event that i i there's reference in some episodes to her being his personal assistant which okay i mean that isn't evident from the episode i watched um whether it's evident in any other other episodes i don't know but um it's a very it's a strange decision to make i mean why not give her her own um 
profession or or special yeah, or, or expertise or skill or something that would generate the stories the, you know the flip side of that is that in terms of their relationship and they are they're, they're equal partners in this aren't, aren't they i mean i have referred to a sidekick but actually she this is an awful phrase this is probably what was on the uh, the pitch document uh, but she gives as good as she gets doesn't she <laughs> oh yeah i thought you were going to say feisty then she actually isn't <laughs> feisty um but yeah she, that 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 was um refreshing and a pleasant surprise actually because going in um i sort of had i thought well you know it's i know it was the 90s but still that's nearly 30 years ago and i can imagine um that he'd sort of steal all the scenes and make all the key decisions and there'd be a fist fight in there or something like that Mm. but actually no she um she's she's integral to the plot and she in fact again on second viewing she um their success in this case such as it is is uh, owes more to her than him she's got a uh, she's got a contact in peru that she uh, that we we see her and this is one of a handful of sort of quite nice and quite successful semi-avengery bits yeah there's there's reference to her having been in in a museum in peru once and then two scenes later she's just coming off the phone having you know speaking in spanish to somebody muchas gracias hasta luego about Mm. some um rope based code that they're uh, that, that's integral to the plot try the letter c for two identical knots next to each other she has an affectation which really to me feels like a labored character note which is that she calls him jc oh no jc yeah um and once 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 you sort of uh, alight upon that then then it really stands out whenever she uses it you know it's um Mind you, there is that thing of they, they all use each other's names a lot. What's your sense on on Cornelius himself? Because, I mean, I can't really get a handle on what his character is. He's not especially eccentric or mysterious. Now, your job as therapists is to take this stressed individual and help them to release these emotions. Slowly and gently and under control. And most important of all safely when he's doing his lecture he's no fits from cracker is he he's not aggressive he's there's no dark soul to the man but also there's no patrick mcnee or do do you think that's what they are thinking there is kind of lightness of touch and but in a steel i mean who is who is jc who is jc see he that there is there as you say there isn't there isn't a single sort of eccentricity or character trait that they that they've exaggerated to sort of make him What's interesting is that early on, um, after the first murder, they, they find a body by a model railway, mm. and the police are swarming there. And the you know the as they're talking, one of the officers finds a little note folded up that sort of falls out of the train, the model train. To John Cornelius, University Psychology Department. What are you doing? But man, take it to him and find out what's in it. And see what he has to say about it. In other words, let, let him open it in front of you, and then we can all discover, viewers included, what, uh, what, what note has been left at the murder scene. Is there a problem, Inspector? No, ma'am. Because uh, they don't want to go and have to speak to JC. Cornelius, that's all we need. Because uh, at that point you're thinking, well, is he, is he sort of a, is he a maverick? Is he objectionable? Has he got some, you know, weird, out, wayward, Mulder-esque sort of um, approach to solving crimes that uh, rubs them up the wrong way type thing? Um, we don't really get much of that, to be honest. And if anything, they seem to get on all right. They, they, I think there's a scene later on when they're having fish and chips. So we either mock him until he gives himself away or be nice to him till he gives himself up. Exactly. 
So it's uh, it's sort of <laughs> strange, strange cues and, and, and clues that don't really lead anywhere. Maybe it's maybe what they were thinking was that, um, um, you know, if, if these episodes, if the crimes or the perpetrators or whatever are going to be a bit outlandish or a bit unusual, we want a very grounded couple um, to sort of centre everything. Um, because between them, they don't really have any any eccentricities themselves. They're quite mm. there's there's sort of an ironic detachment, um, and they're, they're sort of a they're, they're, well, they embody that ironic detachment. Very few things ruffle them or affect them. Yes, I remember Jane talking about a case: a dangerous, manipulating bully capable of anything if threatened. Yes, and she was right. If it is the judge, why would he address this note to you personally? Oh, my formidable reputation, perhaps? Well, whatever. One thing's for certain. He's decided to take us on. Uh, there's a lot of affect in the whole thing, but um, they don't really feel the effects of anything, you know what I mean? They float above it all, really. And, um, I mean, they are, they are... They don't want people to be hurt or killed or anything, but uh, after the... Uh, you know, by the end of the episode, they, uh, they're sort of looking at it in, in a rather sort of detached way. Yes, it's true that because it, it does almost cut immediately from a scene of someone being hanged to those two, um, you know, about to get it on um, romantically. I've got a riddle, a conundrum for you. Conundrum. Mm. Very insouciantly as well, you know, they 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 kind of clink their tall stemmed glasses and then the final riddle, more ancient than those. It's a code based on touch. Braille. Mm, when I say ancient, I mean prehistoric it's a communication as old as man and woman there's a weird sort of provincial town glamour to the whole thing sort of if you know if if dynasty was in some red brick university town some of our listeners may know you from your idiosyncratic if I can use that word Transformers comic book series and, and you, one of the things you did in that if I may say is that you you teased out really interesting facets of a franchise by really drilling down into things like what it would mean to be a shape-changing robot for example does virtual murder present such rich opportunities for you are there things in here that you could mine for this may this may seem strange given everything else you talked about but I, I do sort of wish there had been a second series I, I think it could have found its feet. Um, I, I reckon they, they were firing in all directions with, well, certainly this episode. I, I don't imagine the rest of the series was much different. But I think if they could have settled a little bit on on a tone and been more confident in terms of what, what type of stories they were trying to tell, I reckon it could have got, it could have got better and, 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 and done quite well. And I think, I think Nicholas Clay and Kim Thompson are, are pretty good leads, actually. Mm. Um, um, and what you often get with, sort of pseudo-anthology series, you know, where it's a different, or, or, you know, a new case each week type thing. When you get into the second series and beyond, then you do delve a little bit more into the, the backstories of the characters and the histories and things. And you could, we could have probably mined both Sam and JC um, for interesting, you know, interesting details. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's easy to do these things in, in retrospect, but it would have helped, I think, if if both the leads... If there'd been a little bit of um, abrasion or grit or something, something in there, some some wrinkle in both their characters to make them a little less um, wholesome, or maybe even sorry, I'm, you know, I'm going off on one now, but thinking maybe, maybe there was a story really in in there 
detachment from these cases really maybe they were treating it too playfully or or they were too they weren't sufficiently emotionally invested or something like that no i mean i guess it's not a show which is ever going to feel emotionally true that's not what it's trying to do um and actually i think as an aside you know there are some ingenious elements you mentioned that one of the clues is some knotted ropes which it turns out is code i thought that was that was a great you know little conceit that was good and i liked how the judge himself you know he gets he gets killed um at the hands of his own sort of equipment you know he gets hanged um with the uh, equipment that he had installed in his house so there was a sort of a a theme i don't want to be too generous with my with my reading of it but there was there was some attempt made to sort of um you know have some sort of uh, just desserts that reflected the other elements of the episode uh, i find it hard to be too critical despite the many many mistakes i can imagine a very straightforward procedural show like a very lightweight cracker where mm. where you, you know you need a sort of a, a psychologist to help solve crimes and then at the other end of the of the spectrum i can imagine a very you know the avengers at its most um surreal or outlandish or whatever and and virtual murder sort of straddles those two and doesn't really know um well maybe it knows what it wants to be but doesn't know how how to go about being that thing How did Virtual Murder, so, I mean, I'm very indebted to you for watching it twice. How did it fit into your day? Did it cheer you up? I get the impression that perhaps it puzzled you. What did it do for you? It, it, it was, I suppose, appropriately enough, it was a bit of a puzzle, really, because um, uh, when I watched it, first of all, I watched it quite late, and um, and I sort of, I thought, I thought, this is this is bad TV, I thought. I thought it's, it's badly executed, Um it just isn't well written, and I realised I was I was judging it too harshly. I thought of I was I was pulled back for a second viewing, which I didn't have to do, um, but I'm I'm glad I did because uh, second time round it seemed it, it hung together better. I was more forgiving of its of its um, sort of unintentional quirks. Um, so it actually made me think of other stuff that I that I would have rejected outright. I thought, God, if I if I went back and you know, like listening to an album. And you think, well, that's a forgettable song, or I won't listen to that again in a hurry. But often, some of the best albums are the ones you go back to, and especially when you're a teenager and, you, and you've got little option but to keep playing the same records again and again, and they sort of reveal themselves on the sort of third or fourth listen. I wouldn't say Virtual Murder is a masterpiece, but on second viewing, it's it was better, and I and it did make me think, perhaps I should give other stuff a second chance as well. What album would you liken it to? Oh God, um, <laughs> I'm thinking now of an album that seemed awful at first and got slightly better second time round. <laughs> it's like it's like "Be Here Now" by Oasis, okay? Because that's that's a pretty bad album, um, and yet and and sort of it was the death of Britpop, um, overblown, overwrought, and all the rest of it. And then 25 years on or whatever, you think actually there's a couple of good songs in there. It wasn't quite as bad as we thought. Lastly, how are you finding life in lockdown? It could be a lot worse, you know, for, for, for me and, and sort of and, and my family. Um, and I think that's that's always a good sort of grounding thought. If the boredom sort of sets in, or, or um, you know, you go a bit stir crazy, or cabin fever, and all the rest of it, you think, God, I could be 
I could be in a in a worse place. I could be far more precarious in terms of my job and income and stuff like that. So uh, I think the strange thing is we don't really know what the end point is going to be. And, and I feel there's a lot of um, a lot of news is sort of being mediated, even subconsciously. But I think I think everyone's sort of concerned not to put too much of a sort of mental burden on people. Um, I think a lot of people would find it awful to imagine that um, you know normality was uh, six months 12 months away whatever and so we may be a bit slow to confront some of the horrible realities of um of this really um yeah and i've got i've got two two children and one's you know one's 18 one's nine and um for the nine-year-old certainly it's it's just one of those sort of formative experiences you know it, it'll be it'll be defined well for both of them but but certainly for the younger one it's just one of those things that will be a, a huge event in, in his childhood, you know. Mm, strange times. Thank you, James, for watching Virtual Murder. Thank you for talking to me about it. Now, stay indoors. Mm.